All right, well, today is Palm Sunday, and two years ago in 2012, April 1st, 2012 was Palm Sunday, and that was Melody and my first day as lead pastors here. And so uh, the calendar-wise, we've been pastors for a little over two years, but on the Jesus calendar, it feels like a two-year anniversary for me uh, of being the pastor here to, to be my third Palm Sunday and heading into my third Easter Sunday. And so as a special anniversary treat to myself, I want to tell you my favorite joke. Uh, and if you are a student here or a a student leader in the 662, you've probably heard this joke before, so don't give away the ending. But this is called the pink golf ball joke. Uh, it's a little bit of a legendary joke in our youth ministry. Uh, so the pink golf ball joke goes like this. There was a man, a father, who had a son. And as his son came up and became ready to go off to first grade, the dad pulled his son aside and he said, son, I think you're very special. I think you've got a lot of potential. Uh, and as you go through elementary school, I want to issue you a challenge because I want to motivate you. I want you to do your best. I want you to reach your potential. So he said, son, if you do this, if you make straight A's all the way through elementary school, first, second, third, fourth, and fifth grades, at the end of fifth grade, I will buy you whatever you want. You name it, it's yours. So little first grade son looks up at dad. His eyes are real big. And he's kind of scary. He says, Okay, Dad, I'll do my best. So he goes off to first grade, and sure enough, the kid really does have a lot of potential. He is kind of a special kid. And all the way through elementary school, first through fifth grade, he makes straight A's. He never makes a B. So at the end of fifth grade, Dad pulls his son aside, and he says, Son, I am so proud of you. I knew you could do this. I really want to bless you. Dad was very wealthy. He said, I really want to bless you. I'm going to get you anything that you want. You name it. You tell me what you want, and I'm going to buy it for you. So fifth grade son looks up at Dad. He says, Dad... I want a field full of pink golf balls. Dad thinks it's kind of odd, but, you know, his son's 11 years old. They're kind of weird at that age, amen? Uh, so he decides, no problem, I'm going to be true to my word. So he goes out and he gets his son a field full of pink golf balls, 20 acres full of pink golf balls as far as the eye can see. He goes off to middle school. Dad says, son, if you make straight A's all the way through middle school, I'll buy you anything that you want. So the kid says, okay, Dad. I'll do my best. So sure enough, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, the kid makes straight A's, never makes a B. The end of 8th grade, his dad pulls him aside. He says, son, I am so proud of you. I knew you could do it. You're a little more mature now. You've kind of gone through puberty. I really want to bless you. I really want to get you something awesome. What do you want? The kid says, dad, I want a house made out of pink golf balls to go in my field full of pink golf balls. So dad's starting to get just a little bit worried about his son. But true to his word, he goes out and he gets him a house made out of pink golf balls. A three-story mansion, most beautiful, largest house you've ever seen. Smack dab in the middle of the field full of pink golf balls. He goes off to high school. Dad says, son, if you make straight A's all the way through high school, I'll buy you anything that you want. Kid says, all right, dad, I got this. So sure enough, ninth through 12th grade, kid makes straight A's, never makes a B. Graduates, valedictorian of his class, he gives a speech. At graduation, after graduation, dad runs up to him and he hugs him in his graduation gown. He says, son, I am so proud of you. You've done such an amazing job. You've worked so hard to get to this place. I really want to bless you now. As you become a man, as you're beginning your life, I really want to get you something that matters, something that counts. What can I buy for you, son? Son says, dad, I want a car made out of pink golf balls. So dad's really starting to look for like a counselor for his son. But sure enough, he goes out and he gets him a car made out of pink golf balls. A gorgeous automobile, a Porsche made completely from pink golf balls to park in front of his house, made of pink golf balls in his field full of pink golf balls. Kid goes off to college. Dad says, son, 
this is your last chance. Make straight A's all the way through college, and I will buy you anything that you want. Kid says, no problem, Dad. I got this. Sure enough, kid goes off to college, takes very, very high-level courses, straight A's, never makes a B, graduates with the highest average of anyone who's ever attended this university. Senior night, or graduation night, he's valedictorian once again. Dad goes up to him. He's got a little tear in his eye. Son, I couldn't be prouder of you. You've worked so hard. You've done so well. You've excelled in everything you've ever set your hand to. Now you're about to leave. You're about to go be a man now. You're about to start your own family. Move on in life. I really want to get you something that counts. What can I buy for you? This is the last thing I'm getting. Son says, Dad, I want a jet made out of pink golf balls. So Dad throws up his hands in frustration. But true to his word, he goes out and he buys him a jet made out of pink golf balls. One day the kid's out flying his jet, and it crashes. And they rush him to the hospital. Nurse gets on the phone. She calls the father. She says, you need to get to the hospital as quickly as you can. Your son's been in an accident. He may not have much longer to live. Father rushes to the hospital, runs into the ER room, finds his son, sees him on the bed, throws his arms around him, says, son, I love you so much. I am so proud of you. I just have one question. Why the pink golf balls? Kid looks up at his dad, tears in his eyes. He says, Dad, I love you too. And then he died. I love that joke so much because it's incredible to tell and awful to hear. Uh, my youth pastor actually taught me that joke when I was in sixth grade, and I hated him for it for about two years. Uh, and, and many of you have hated me for that joke as well. Some of you are hating me right now. Uh, why do we hate that joke so much? Because you actually get involved in the story. You actually begin to connect with the story, and then the ending leaves you hanging. Not to mention the kid dies. But you're more upset over the fact you don't know why the pink golf balls. Let's just be honest. That's what bothers you the most. There's this un resolved tension. You see, the truth is we love Hollywood endings. There's a reason the happy ending is a cliche. There's a reason when we watch a TV show, we love sitcoms where, man, everything can fall apart. Everything is wrong with the world. Everything goes wrong and it all gets fixed in 30 minutes or less. And everybody's happy and everything's good and you're smiling and you're laughing once again. We love that stuff. We love resolution. We love to see a conflict, to see a challenge, and to see it restored. We love the good guy to get the girl, the bad guy to get what's coming to him, and the problem to get solved, right? We love that. And anytime there's an ending that doesn't quite line up to that, it bothers us. It frustrates us. I hate bad endings. I hate sad endings. I hate to go spend 20 bucks to take my wife to a movie and to walk out of there depressed. I'm like, man, I want my money back. That is not how that was supposed to go down. I spent nine years watching How I Met Your Mother, and it ended terribly, terribly. I'm still bitter, still working through some stuff. Man, a bad ending can ruin a great experience. And the problem is life doesn't always give us a Hollywood ending. Life doesn't always give us the happy ending. The truth is, the unhappy ending, the unresolved ending, is many times our real life experience. Sometimes life gives us a plot twist that we didn't expect to happen. Sometimes the good guy doesn't win. Sometimes the bad guy gets the girl. A lot of times it seems the bad guy gets the girl in real life. Sometimes the problem doesn't get solved. Sometimes it seems that the bad guy doesn't get what's coming to him, and we want that Hollywood ending in life, just like we do on screen. 
this is the problem in the story that we're going to finish up today. We spent the last couple of weeks in a series called Prodigal, looking at one of the most famous stories of Jesus, one of his most famous parables, the story of the prodigal son. And what we've discovered is it's not really a story of one prodigal or wasteful son. It's really the story of two prodigal, wasteful sons. It's the story of two lost sons, but only one of them realizes his problem. Last week we looked at the younger son and how he lived this wild life, this lavish life, this party life, and ended up in a very, very low place, how he reaped the penalty of the decisions that he had made, of the horrible choices. And we saw him end up at that place, and we knew, man, so beautiful to see him turn and come back to his father. It's so beautiful to see him come to dad, and dad embraces him and runs to him, and they celebrate, and dad says, get him a robe and get him some sandals and put a ring on his finger and go kill the fattened calf. We're going to have a barbecue. It's going to be a party. We're going to celebrate my son has come home, and we see this beautiful ending. It ends exactly the way we want it to do, except Jesus doesn't stop talking. And there's more to the story. There's a plot twist that we didn't see coming. Jesus goes and pulls an M. Night Shyamalan, and he twists it all at the end, and instead of the ending that we wanted, it's not resolved. It doesn't go the way we feel like it's supposed to go. See, we want life to be like Return of the Jedi, right? We want life to, to where everything works out in the end, man, where Han Solo and Princess Leia are kissing and everything's good and, and Darth Vader has turned back to the good side and the Emperor has been thrown down the shaft. And I, yes, I'm a Star Wars geek. Get over it. And, and man, we want it all to come back together, but a lot of times life doesn't work like Return of the Jedi. Jedi. A lot of times life works like the Empire Strikes Back. And the Empire Strikes Back doesn't end well. The Empire Strikes Back where it seems like the evil side is winning. It seems like everything's going to be destroyed. Luke has just been confronted, this kid with these daddy issues, just has his, the villain, the guy that he hates the most in the world, says, Luke, I'm your father, and his mind is blown, and everybody's mind is blown. And you're trying to figure out how is this even possible? Is he messing with his head? What's going on? And Han's been, been locked up, and before that... Uh, Princess Leia says, Han, I love you. And he gives the weirdest line in the history of movies. He says, I know. It's like, what? That's what every girl wants to hear, right? Like, it's not the moment. It's not the good guy gets the girl and they embrace and they're happy. I know. It's like, you arrogant jerk. Uh, and, And nothing is going the way it's supposed to go. Evil's prevailing over good. And the movie ends and there's unresolved tension. And when this happened back in the late 70s, this was revolutionary. Cliffhangers were not part of the movie vernacular. This wasn't something that happened. They didn't do sequels. They didn't have series. This totally revolutionized the way movies were made because everything was supposed to be fixed in the, at the end of the movie. And they come in and they totally blow everybody's mind and they don't fix it and there's this unresolved tension and everybody hates it. But they can't wait for three years when the next movie comes out to go and see it and show up and line up at the box office. So... Even though we hate that unresolved tension, it keeps us engaged in the story. And Jesus gives us a story with some unresolved tension. Why? Because he wants us to stay engaged in it. He doesn't want us to get the warm, fuzzy feeling and set it aside and move on. He wants it to bother us. He wants us to wrestle with it. He wants us to process it so that it changes the way 
that we live. Remember, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son because the religious leaders were, were criticizing Jesus. They were upset with Jesus because he dared. He had the audacity to hang out with sinners. He had the audacity to associate with prostitutes and tax collectors with the lowest of the Jewish society because he was crazy enough to be a religious leader, a rabbi, who actually tolerated and accepted and loved the lowest of the low. And the other religious leaders, the Pharisees, are like, no, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Who does he think he is? If he was really from God, he would know what she does. If he was really from God, he would know what he does. If he was really from God, he would know he's not supposed to be around those kind of people. And so Jesus tells this story to address their accusations about him. And he knows there's others uh, from all walks of life who are listening into the story. So he makes sure and works them into the story and addresses them. But the point of the story is the part we're about to read. What Jesus is really trying to convey is he's speaking to the Pharisees, the older brother. It's very important for us to understand this. Luke 15, 1 through 3, we see the, the context here. It says, the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. It seems like the Pharisees are always muttering, doesn't it? They're all about some muttering. If you find yourself muttering a lot, you might want to check yourself a little bit. Uh, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. <gasps> the horror. Who does he think he is? He eats with sinners. The irony here is they eat with sinners too. They just don't know it. Right? That, that's, the, the irony, that's the whole point that Jesus is getting at is you're just as lost. You're just as bad. You've missed it just as much. The only difference between the younger son who's the wild one and the older son who's the Pharisee is the older son thinks he's got it all together. And so Jesus tells this story. He says, verse 3, then Jesus told them, this parable, and he actually went on to tell them three parables. The first parable is the, the parable of the lost sheep. He tells the story of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, and ninety-nine of them are in the pen, but one of them has wandered off. And the shepherd leads the ninety-nine to go and find the one and bring it home. And then he tells the story of the lost coin, and this woman has this very precious coin, and this coin has disappeared, and so she abandons everything and to go on the search to find this one lost coin. And then he gets to this parable, the longest and most famous of the series, but they're all back to back to back, teaching the same point towards the Pharisees. And as we get to this section, this last section of the story in Luke chapter 15, go ahead and turn there if you have your Bible. We're going to see the plot twist, the part of the story that we don't like. I hate this part of the story. This one bothers me. It's not the way it's supposed to be. I want to smack some sense into this older brother. Man, I want to sit down with him and, and shake him and say, what are you thinking? But the scary thing is, as I really got into this message this week and really studied this and really wrestled with it, I found out that I'm a whole lot more of the older brother than I want to admit. You see, in, in reality, in actual practicality, I am an older brother. And I am an older brother who pursued God, who, who prioritized the things of God, and I have a younger brother who didn't, who went out and lived the wild life. And so I can see in this story so much of me and my brother, and I want to think that I'm not like that older brother. I'm the good older brother. I'm the older brother who would celebrate when his younger brother comes home. But getting into the story, I see that I have a lot more of this than I want to admit. And my question for you as we wrestle with this story today is are you going to see yourself in the older brother as well? Because as, as Christians, the 
propensity is for us to end up in this place. I've been calling myself a Christian for 31 years. The first time I knelt down by my bedside to ask Jesus to come into my heart, I was two years old. And I did it again at four and again at eight. So whichever one you want to pick, I'm not sure when I actually got saved. I don't know when I was old enough for it really to mean something. But I know for as long as I can remember, literally, I've considered myself a Christian. I've been a Christian for decades. That makes me feel old to say that. Decades with an S at the end of it. And some of you have been a Christian for longer than that. And when you've been a Christian for so long, if you're not careful, you forget what it's like to be the lost son. And you begin to think that God owes you something, that you've earned something from God, that God needs to do something for you. And we end up over here like the older brother. So Luke 15, starting at verse 25. It says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Now, when you hear music and dancing, it's supposed to make you feel good, right? We're about to get a party on, man. We're about to, like if Dwindle was up here, he'd show you some salsa moves. I don't have Dwindle's salsa moves, so I'm not going to go there. But, man, it, you, it's supposed to be a good thing. It's a celebration. You hear music coming from the house. You're coming in from a hard day's work. Sweet. Man, there's some food. There's some party. There's some, some stuff going on. He doesn't come in like that. He comes in with the total opposite attitude. It says, he calls one of the servants and asks him what was going on. Verse 27. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Now remember that phrase, safe and sound. We're going to come back to that. Verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. You've got to be real angry to refuse to go have a steak. I'm just saying. You're pretty bitter. Like, I could be bitter over a lot of things and still come in and have my steak with some anger. You know, you have a Thanksgiving table moment where you don't like everybody that you're sitting at the table with, but you're still going to have the turkey, right? Like, you're still going to let yourself partake of the goods. So you're pretty bitter to stay outside of the party altogether. 28, the older brother became angry, refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. There's three things in particular that I want to highlight in our time together today about how our older brother is lost. In fact, I want to see three things that the older brother himself lost. The father wasn't the only, story in the, the only one in the story to lose something. The older brother lost some things as well. First of all, the older brother lost his joy. He lost his joy. Man, when there's a party going on and you don't want to be a part of it, when there's a party for a good thing, for a celebration that your brother has come home and you don't even want to set foot inside, you've lost some joy. Don't get me wrong. There's no doubt that the older brother had the right to be angry at the way his younger brother had treated his father. There's some righteous anger here that I think is okay. When you see someone hurt someone you love, when you see someone hurt themselves, it's okay to be angry over that. and You can be angry and sin not. So anger is not in and of itself uh, a sin. I think the older brother was justified to have some righteous anger towards what his brother had done past tense in the past. But in this moment of restoration, in this moment of the family coming back together, for him to not be able to celebrate but instead live in the past, live in the decisions that his brother had made, not in the decision that he was making now, it's very clear that he lost his joy. It should have counted for a lot, the way that his father received his brother back. It should have meant something to him. It should have been like, oh, my gosh, my dad is freaking awesome. Man, I don't know if I'm even ready to forgive my brother yet. I don't know that I could do that. But my, bro- my dad is celebrating him and restoring him. I need to be more like dad. 
That's the kind of dad I want to be one day. That should have inspired him. It should have motivated. It should have spoken to him. And there's an important word in the story. We, like we said, it's safe and sound. That word, that phrase safe and sound is actually one word in the Greek original text, and it's this. It's hygiano. Hygiano. Hygiano is the Greek word that we get our word for hygiene. So we think of hygiene as cleanliness, right? Like you brush your teeth, you put on your deodorant, you take a shower every day, right? It's the way it's supposed to be anyway. Uh, so you're supposed to have good hygiene. We think of it as cleanliness. But in the Greek, it actually means more wholeness, that, that you have a, a sense, a, a purpose of wholeness. You're in a place where you are whole, hygiano. And so most of the time in the New Testament when we see hygiano, um, it's actually the New Testament authors quoting an Old Testament passage, in, and so they're taking it from Hebrew into Greek, and the Old Testament word that they're bringing into hygiano is the word shalom. Shalom is the, as you may know, is maybe a little more familiar with, is the Hebrew word for peace. But it's not just peace as in the absence of war. It's peace as in wholeness. It's peace as in everything is working the way it's supposed to be. So the father has received the older son back, Hygiano. He's safe and sound. He's whole. He's complete. The family is not missing a part anymore. The part is back where it's supposed to be. The father-son relationship is not missing something. It's been restored. He's Hygiano. And so when Jesus says... The, uh, the father has sent back safe and sound. He really means the father has offered peace between them. And this is why the older brother is so upset. This is what he allowed to steal his joy. And just understand this. The fruit of the spirit is joy. If you have the Holy Spirit living in you, you have been given joy. And so the only way that joy gets taken from you is if you let something take it. It's been promised to you. It's there for you. So if, you're not, if you don't have joy, it's because something stole it. And you've got to take it back. And so he lets... Something steal his joy. He lets the fact that his kid brother squandered his dad's money and is then let back into the family again. And that has stolen his joy. It angers him to hear that his dad has welcomed him back and has put on his father's robe and has given him the family ring and has put sandals back on his feet. That bothers him. But then it adds insult to injury. He's throwing him a freaking party. He's celebrating this punk, this one who should be the outcast, this one who should have to earn his way back into dad's favor, who should have to demonstrate over years and years and years how sorry he is, who should pay a penance. He's going to receive him back and throw him a party in day one, and it tears the older brother apart. Here's my question for you. Is it hard for you to be happy when good things happen to others? If you're real honest... If you look at yourself, is it hard for you to celebrate when something good happens to somebody else? It's like, oh, man, somebody gave you a brand new car. That's awesome. What was wrong with your 2012? My 78 Pinto is running good. Thanks for asking. Right? I mean, you get like that bitterness because like they've already had it better than you and now they got another level better than you. And it's like, I can't celebrate for you. I hate you right now. If we're honest, I think a lot of us understand what that's right. Romans 12, 15 says very famously to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. And as I get older and older, here's what I'm finding out. It's easier for me to do the second part sometimes than the first. It's easier for me to mourn with those who mourn. It's easier for me to feel compassion and to be drawn to somebody who's hurting, to cry with them, to, to pray with them, to hug on them, to love on them through their pain than sometimes it is for me to celebrate with the one who's celebrating. But God puts them both together. 
I have a job. You have a job as a Christian. I'm supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice, whether I've got anything to rejoice about in my own life at the moment or not. And by the way, we've got a ton to rejoice about, but we'll get to that later. We're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Why is this? Well, if you find yourself in that boat, it's because you've got an older brother problem, just like me. It means we've forgotten where we came from, that God saved us by grace, by his grace alone, that we deserve nothing more than death and hell, and that everything that we have in life is simply a blessing from a God who is so incredibly gracious to us. And we forget that, we lose sight of that, and we see somebody else with something better, and it bothers us. Most of the time we start to think that we're pretty awesome and God owes us something greater. And this is the kind of stuff that makes Christians arrogant, rude, self-centered, mean-spirited. This is the kind of stuff that the world sees and says, I don't want any part of that. I don't want to be like you. And the world sees this in so many Christians, far too many Christians. It's not that we want things to be awful for everybody else, right? It's just that we want things to be good for them and great for us. We want them to have the B plus, the A minus kind of blessings, and we want the A plus miracles for ourselves. And as long as I'm getting the A plus, man, you're A minus, I can celebrate with that. But when I look and I see I'm going to be, man, I can't celebrate your A because I'm competitive and it's hard for me. And that's, I'm just being real. And that's something I've got to work through many times in many ways. Many times I think this is the worst way to live and it will absolutely kill your joy. We've got to celebrate with those who celebrate. We've got to see the good things, the blessings that God is giving to somebody else, whether we're experiencing that same blessing or not. Say, man, I'm so happy for you. I'm so glad that we serve a God who is so good that you would have this in this moment. Moving on in our story, verse 29. The father's gone out to, to meet with his older son, and the older son answers his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. So he's killing the fattened calf for the younger son, the best of the best, greatest thing that you can have. And his older son says, I never even got just a baby goat. Nobody's eating a baby goat. Nobody wants to eat. He's the same, man. I never even got the least. There's no meat on that thing. It's tough. It's a goat who eats goat. Like he, he's like, I've never even gotten this. And you're giving him that. Now let's be honest. Do you think he's really never gotten fattened calf? Do you think he's really never had his dad serve him the best of the best? He's eating the best of the best on a regular basis. He lives with a wealthy father who's a good and generous father, but he's saying, I never got it just for me. The problem is not that he didn't get the calf. The problem is he wasn't the center of the attention. And he feels like, how come I'm not getting celebrated the way this punk is getting Celebrated. Verse 30, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. The second thing the older brother lost is he lost his focus. He lost his focus. He quit looking where he was supposed to and he started getting distracted. The issue here is that he's stuck playing the comparison game. Instead of rejoicing that his younger brother is home safely, man, I thought you were going to die. I thought you were going to end up in prison. I thought I would never see you again, and now you're back, and I'm so glad that you're here. Instead of celebrating the way that the older brother should have, all he could think is he lived wildly, he squandered everything, and dad still took him back. So why didn't I go out and do the same thing? 
This is really what it comes down to. He's jealous that his brother got to live all these things and experience all these things and sin in all these different ways and still entitled to come back home. Why didn't I go and do the same thing? Why does a person think this? Because they lose their focus. Instead of thinking, man, my dad is great. He is so gracious. He would live, give up everything for his son to come back. Instead of being so impressed with his father's blessings and his father's generosity, he loses his focus and starts to compare himself. And hear me on this, church. Nothing good comes when you compare yourself to others. Nothing good comes when you compare yourself to others. One of two things will happen when you compare yourself. The first thing that happens is you're going to end up feeling really bad because somebody else is better than you. They're better, they're better looking than you. They're smarter than you. They got more than you. They're better than you. And, man, you feel bad. Like, man, I wish I was more like them. Second thing that's going to happen is you're going to feel prideful because you're better than them. Man, I got it together. I made better decisions. I've got more wisdom. Nothing good happens when you compare yourself to others. You're going to end up off track one way or the other. Last year, I got a cool opportunity uh, to go speak at, at a pastor's conference. I think I've told you guys a little bit about it before, but basically they brought me in to Jackson, Mississippi to come and teach a session for, for pastors on how to use social media uh, to, to help enhance your church, to help build your church, to help reach your community. And uh, I was shocked that I was asked to do this. I don't consider myself an expert in this area in, in any way, shape, or form, but somebody had seen some of the stuff we've done online and thought that it was pretty cool and that, man, we might have some stuff to share. So I went, I was so excited and I called one of my buddies in ministry, one of my best friends who's a pastor, and I was so excited to tell him this. And before I got to tell him that I'd been invited to this conference, he beats me to the punch and he's like, dude, you're not going to believe this. I just found out I'm going on a tour in Africa. I'm going to Jackson, Mississippi. <laughs> and you're touring the freaking continent. And like, all my joy was just gone, like, just like that. Instead of celebrating that God was using me in a new way, instead of celebrating that God had given me a new opportunity, all of a sudden all I could see is I'm two years younger than this guy, and I'm going to Jackson, Mississippi to talk to 30 pastors, and he's going to Africa to talk to millions. And my focus was completely lost. And this is what happens when we get in comparison. Is we, there's always somebody who's got more. There's always somebody who does better. There's always somebody who's further along. There's always somebody who, who's got something greater. And, man, this is on the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. And coveting's not just stuff. Coveting can be opportunity. Coveting can be relationship. Coveting can be, man, the, 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 oper- the place that that person is in in their life. And we can look at that thing and, man, I wish I had that. And it's dangerous and it doesn't do any good for us. Here's what we don't realize. We have envy and jealousy in our hearts when we compare. Our problem is not with the person who has what we want. Ultimately, our problem is not with that person. Ultimately, my problem wasn't with him that he was going on a tour of Africa. Ultimately, my problem was with God. How come I don't have that opportunity? How come I'm going to Jackson, Mississippi, and he's going to Africa? Ultimately, that's the root of the problem. The older brother's problem wasn't really with his younger brother. The older brother's problem was with dad. That's where he was directing his anger towards. That was the real root of the problem, that God could allow this to happen. Saying, Dad, I've been here this whole time, and you've never even noticed me. I worked for you. I slaved for you. I sacrificed everything for you, and this is how you treat me. As Christians, if we focus only on the good things we've done and the bad that everyone else is doing, we can think that God got a good deal 
when he got us. You ever felt like that? That, man, God's pretty blessed to have a servant like me. God's pretty blessed to have an older son like me. Man, the younger son, he's an idiot. He's out there doing all this, but I'm working every day. Man, dad must be so proud of me. And we can kind of puff ourselves up and make ourselves feel like we're real special. Because we only look, you know, we, we judge ourselves based on our motives. And we judge everybody else based on their actions. And I know my motives are right, except most of the time they're not really. But I think my motives are right. And that's how we judge ourselves. That's how we look at ourselves. You know what's interesting here? The older brother's doing exactly what the younger brother did. He's shaming his dad with his actions. He's bringing shame on his father just in a totally different way. Culturally, at a, at a party like this, it wasn't just that the older brother should be in attendance. It was actually the older brother's job to host the party for his father. The older brother is supposed to be in the party, welcoming the guests, and actually operating basically like a head waiter. He's supposed to be the one going around to all the guests at the home and making sure they have everything that they need. And so the older brother checks out on his responsibility, and what happens? Dad has to come out to him. And so dad leaves the party in front of all of the guests, and you can just hear the gasps go up among the crowd. <gasps> He's got to go talk to his other son. We thought he had one messed up son, but it turns out both of his sons hate him. What kind of a father is he really? Right? So, so they're gasping, they, they're whispering, they're gossiping about the dad. And so dad's shamed once again. But this time he's shamed in front of everybody that he's brought into his home. And so his older brother shames him in a totally different way than the younger brother did. Here's the point. My sin on me looks like it needs to be forgiven, right? But my sin on you looks like it needs to be punished. If we're real honest, that's the attitude that we really have when it comes to sin. It's my sin needs to be forgiven because God I didn't mean to it was a mistake it was an honest mistake I don't know how I gave into that temptation they made me do it they it was peer pressure whatever we got all these excuses I accidentally fell into the lifeboat right like we just abandoned the responsibility my sin on me looks like it needs to be forgiven but when I see the sin on you it needs to be punished here's a real basic example of this on occasion I don't use my turn signal I know it's terrible probably just lost a lot of respect for me. Sometimes I'm real lazy and I don't use my turn signal. And every once in a while I've caught myself not using my turn signal and maybe I'm going to make a right into a place and somebody's sitting right there to turn out and they don't turn because they're waiting for me. They think I'm driving by. And then I turn and I get real convicted. And I'm like, man, I'm a jerk. I'm a terrible person. They had to sit here and wait for me. And I'll literally do this. I'm not making this up. I will apologize to them out loud as if they can hear me. Man, I am so sorry that I just didn't use my turn signal. Please forgive me. And then I feel better about myself. And I keep driving because I know, you know, I didn't mean that. I just wasn't thinking. I was caught up in something else. And then I'll come to a situation where somebody else doesn't use their turn signal and I wait on them. And then they turn in and it's road rage pastor comes out, right? Like, all of a sudden, who do they think? Man, that jerk. I got places to go. Don't they know I'm trying to serve Jesus? I'm trying to take something to somebody, and they're wasting my time. And, and all this nonsense comes up at somebody who did exactly the same thing that I've done on many, many, many more than one occasion. Right? And that's how we do it. That's what the older son is doing here. He's looking at the younger brother's sin, and he's saying punish, reject, unworthy. And he looks at his sin, and he says, well, my motives were right. You need to forgive me. That's the way that we operate, because my sin on me looks like it needs to be forgiven, but my sin on you looks like it needs to be punished. When I take my focus off the fact that God saved me by his grace and his grace alone, that I owe him everything, and I start focusing on the things that I do and think that he owes me something, I'm going to miss it. 
just like the older brother did. Verse 31, almost done with our story today. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. I love this. It wasn't an option. It was I wanted to celebrate. He said, we had to. This is the only appropriate response to my son who was dead coming back to my life, to my son who was lost being found. There's no other response I could have. This is the only way I could do it. I had to celebrate. He was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. Third thing the older brother lost, he lost his perspective. He lost perspective. There's a belief that some Christians have many Christians, I think, in today's day and age, that the gospel is, is kind of like kiddie church. That the gospel is, is it's about salvation, it's elementary, and once we get saved, once we've passed that, man, that there's bigger and better things for us to learn. There's bigger and better things for us to experience. There's bigger, bigger and better things that God has for us. But the truth, and, and let me define the gospel because we're going to spend a little time talking about this. The gospel is the good news that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, died for sinful and wicked mankind, that we could be restored to relationship with God. That's the gospel. It's that Jesus, who is perfect, who was God, left heaven, came to earth, died so that we could be restored. Most of you probably have some concept of that, some understanding of that. It is good news. By the way, gospel, the word gospel in Greek literally means good news. So if we're presenting it in a way that's not good news, it's not the gospel. It's always good news. We never outgrow the gospel. In fact, the longer that we're Christians, the more that the gospel should be infiltrating and marinating and permeating our being in, in every aspect of our lives. The more our perspective on the gospel should continually increase, the more we should allow God to use the gospel in our lives. See, the gospel is not just about salvation. It is salvation, but it's about so much more. It's not just about eternity. It is about eternity, but it's about now, too. It's not just about spiritual things. The gospel is about so many practical areas of life I'm going to give you three areas very, very quickly where the New Testament teaches us that the gospel should impact us in this area. And these are not the only three. This is just to give you kind of a taste. The gospel should impact, number one, your marriage. You want a great marriage? The recipe for a great marriage is to mirror the gospel. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 very famously says, Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. If you've been married for any time, you know that this is not elementary Christianity. A great marriage, that's advanced courses. If you want to have a great marriage, you want to have a happy marriage, you want to have a lasting marriage, it takes work. It doesn't just happen. But the recipe for it, you want marriage to be great. Mirror the gospel, reflect the gospel, learn from the gospel, live out the gospel. Secondly, second area that the gospel should impact according to the New Testament is gospel should impact your money. Nobody wants to be greedy, but how do we keep becoming totally self-absorbed and only caring about ourselves? Live out the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8, 7 through 9 says, just as you excel in everything. That's an awesome statement. I just need to live that out, right? And just start claiming that. I excel in everything. In Jesus' name, I'm start claiming that. Just says, I excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in your love for us. Great statement of faith. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. Paul says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is, the gospel. That though he was rich, he had it all. He was in heaven being waited on by angels. Had everything he could ever want. Yet for your sakes, Jesus 
became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus left it all, came down and had nothing, died for us, lived out the gospel. And how is that supposed to affect us? We're supposed to then let the gospel impact the way, we, impact the way that we approach money, the way we approach our finances, that we're going to mirror what Jesus did, that he gave it up so that others could be blessed. And we're supposed to do the exact same thing. We're supposed to give up what we have so that others can be blessed. And in return, God's going to bless us back more and more and more. Verse number three, third way that the gospel impacts us, not just in practical ways, not just in financial ways, not just in relational ways, but in society ways. Number three, impacts your race. How does the gospel relate to a huge social problem like race relations? In the spirit of Rodney King, can't we all just get along, right? The gospel impacts race relations as well. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 says, When Peter came to Antioch, this is Paul writing, he says, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James in Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. Gentiles, anybody who's not a Jew. We read this as Jews and Gentiles, and we forget this is, this is race relations in the early church. This is racial issues. This is differences that they had, both, both racially and culturally, that were causing massive divisions in the early church. It says he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. That was the Jews. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man's not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And here it is. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Here's the point. Race should never be an issue for a Christian. It shouldn't. I know some people in this part of the country might have a real problem with a statement like that. But for a Christian, whether you are white, African-American, Hispanic, Native American, Asian, whatever mix you might be in that racial spectrum, we are all the same under the cross. We are all the same at the foot of Jesus. We all worship the same God. We're all going to worship in the same heaven. We're all going to the same place. The family of God is big enough to have multiple skin tones. Our God, we serve a God who is a God of love, of multiple skin tones. And in the very early church, Satan tried to come in and sow discord, and he tried to justify it in religious ways and tell the Jews that they were better than the Gentiles to cause that racial division. And the gospel confronts that division. And if we are really going to let the gospel impact us, we're going to have to look into the mirror of God's word, and sometimes we're going to see I might have some animosity towards a different racial group. I might even say, well, I'm not a racist, but if you say I'm not a racist, but you might be a racist, right? Like, just the way that it works. And I'm not, like, trying to come down on anybody. Like, I'm not, if you're a racist, it doesn't mean you're a terrible person. It means you need to let the gospel impact your life. God loves racists, too, but he loves people of all races, and we need to reflect him. We need to be like him. And, and sometimes this is not easy for us. Sometimes this doesn't come natural for us. And so we think, we think so many times that the gospel is this basic foundational thing. But when we really get into it, it affects marriage. It affects money. It affects race. Philippians 2 says it affects attitude. Time and time and time again, the gospel affects every aspect of our life. And here's how this ties to the older brother. This older brother here thought that he could earn 
his father's acceptance. Father, that, that he could have everything he wanted, that he could impress his dad, he could get everything he wanted out of his father, that he could basically use his dad. But the truth is, he lived in a gospel home. He didn't get blessed by his father because he worked hard. His father blessed him because daddy loved him. He didn't bless him because you do this, 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 and this for me. He blessed him because you're my son. You're part of my family. And we lose perspective. We forget that I don't have blessings from God. Does God bless me? Absolutely. But God doesn't bless me because I earn his blessings. God blesses me because I'm his kid. Because he's adopted me into his family. He's given me his name. He's given me a part and a share in his inheritance. And that's entitled me to his blessing. And I can never earn that. Now the truth is now I need to respond in obedience. See, that's my response to his love. I don't earn his love through obedience, but I love him and obey him because he loved me first. And so we got to make sure that we keep the right perspective. we got to make sure that we keep it facing in the right direction. So why isn't this story a Hollywood ending? Why isn't it the happy ending that we all wanted? Because the older brother didn't believe the gospel. He thought that he could keep, get everything Simply by keeping the rules. Jesus intentionally left us in this story with some tension. And, I, man, if I told the story, maybe I'd tell it different. I don't know. I love the pink golf ball joke because it leaves all that tension. So maybe I wouldn't tell it any different. But Jesus left us with some tension in the story because he wanted it to impact us, because he wanted it to inspire us, because he wanted us to check, do we have some older brother in us? See, it's not about my performance. It's about the finished work of Jesus. And that's what makes me a Christian. That's what allows me to be a man of God. That's what allows me to be used by God. And that's what's going to allow you to be used by God in whatever sphere he has you for. You can't earn his favor. You simply come in to his family and into his home. And once you do, man, it's going to give you the strength to live it out and follow his rules. Hope you guys enjoyed this series. I loved this series. I love this story. Next week, we're going to be looking, confronting face-to-face the cross the gospel, and in such a way I'm going to give you guys next week, just so you know, and and for your friends, basically we're going to answer the question, why does this matter now, okay? Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago. How does this affect me? And I'm going to give three answers to that question. How does Jesus' death and resurrection affect me today? It's going to be awesome. I think God is going to speak so loud and so clear to each of us. So let's pray.